X-ray. I was talking about this competing trends of high price signaling quality, but value being important to consumers. Uh, what's going to happen now with high with higher inflation? I suspect maybe that second aspect is more important than the first, which is why I think it's ever more important to build a brand that consumers trust and so they sort of identify as being a high quality brand. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Beer Bible, second edition. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Here we are again. Here we are. <laughs> not not uh, too far off schedule, so that's good. Yeah, we are not getting these out once a week, as was our goal at one point, but we are getting them out kind of reliably once every other week. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you get what you pay for, as we always say. Indeed. <laughs> and it's spring. Spring has sprung. Yeah. And we're in Studio Central, I guess. And you know why they say spring has sprung? Uh, please enlighten me. Because it, when, when flowers pop open, they spring out all this pollen all over my face. It's uh. terrible. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> I'm dying over here. It is it is allergy season in Oregon. Uh, yeah, it affects the sinuses, which probably affects the beer drinking enjoyment too, huh? You know, it's weird. Uh, it makes my nose run, but it doesn't so much affect my mm. my my, uh, my olfactory capacity. But what it really does, and I don't understand if this is the drugs or the pollen or the combo, but it kind of messes with my brain and makes it very slow and sludgy. And every year that's happened, I think, oh, I feel terrible. I'm always tired all the time. I get a kind of low grade headache. I think I probably, probably, this is probably it. I've got cancer. I'm dying. <laughs> I remember, oh, no, it's just allergies. It happens every year. Uh, yeah, I feel for you. I was up on the mountain this week because it's spring break. And since my wife and I are both teachers and my son is a High school student, we went up to the top of Mount Hood. Well, not the top, but high up on Mount Hood. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it was beautiful up there for the did, most part. Did you come down on a on a like a waxed board of something? <laughs> yeah, we were skiing. We uh, atypical splurge and stayed in the Timberline Lodge, which is the historic lodge way up six thousand feet up on Mount Hood. It's a Works Progress Administration Depression Era uh, project. Um, These are all over the West Coast, and they are some of the most impressive structures. They're really awesome. Yeah, because it wasn't just giving people work, but it was also giving artisans work. And so they're, everything is, all the timbers hand-hewn, and there's all these little carvings and little pieces of art everywhere. Um, it's a fabulous place. It's a really, it sort of it transports you um, back to a different era, and it's awesome. But you're also right there at the, at the ski area. There's a ski area that runs at the same place. And so, uh, yeah, for the, I've never done this before, but I've never done that either. I envy you. We did three days of skiing and snowboarding and staying in the lodge and it was really fun. And you're in one piece. So and I, and I'm in one piece. Well, that's the thing I've, I've, I no longer have that, uh, youthful, uh, exuberance that I once had, which I would bomb down the mountain as fast <laughs> as I possibly could and jump as high as possibly could. And all those days are long gone. I definitely have, my brain is in self-preservation mode. Yeah. So I, 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 I look for those moderate runs and I ski down nice and smooth and just enjoy life. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we all, we all emerged unscathed. Um, that was super fun. And by the way, there's uh, Mount Hood Brewing companies up there and they, I don't know what the deal is, but they basically have a deal with the Timberline Lodge, um, to be their beer supplier. So, um, lots of good tasty beer up there because Mount Hood Brewing is got it going on man they do have it going on and they actually have a brew pub down below timberline not so far which is a fun pub in, yeah in government camp and and uh, uh we thought about going there but they're not open during the week they're only oh. open like thursday through sunday or something so and we were there monday tuesday wednesday night uh they have a uh uh pale ale which is fabulous I know that pale. You know that pale. Yeah. It's really good. Are they still making Ice Axe IPA? They're still making Ice Axe IPA, which is kind of nice because it's a little bit of an old school. Man, 
that sucker is way old school. That's like a mid nineties. Yeah, but I think they've updated the recipe a little bit. So there's a little more aromatic and more modern hops on top, but you still get that nice bracing little punch yeah. uh, of uh, hop bitterness. Very cool. Uh, uh, which uh, was the first one I ordered actually and, and enjoyed quite a bit, half just because of the beer and half because of the nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then I had the pale, which I don't think I had before, and I was blown away, and that's all I drank the rest of the time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, so here we are down below, um, back in the flats in the valley yep. with the pollen. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I should do, get up above the pollen. Yeah. Uh, you sent me a, a picture of the mountain when you were out riding down here. Um, so I was, I was up above looking down and you were down below looking up Yeah, we're in as it of, should be, by the way, this is the proper order of things. That is true. Um, we're, we're in one of those moments when the, 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 the sky is all rainwashed and there's no occlusion, uh, and on clear days when there's no clouds, the, the snowy mountain is especially gorgeous. So oh. spring is, is yeah, a great it's in high def. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, um, we're here to talk about beer, sort of. We are, and in fact, uh, we're going to talk about beeronomics today. We have a special uh, all beeronomics episode. The Labor Department recently reported that inflation was up 7.9% over the past year, mm-hmm. uh, sending the stock markets down and causing the Federal Reserve to begin raising interest rates. The news landed amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine, one of the biggest grain producers in the world. Add to that the rising cost of aluminum, a historically bad year for barley, and high gas prices, and it is clear that the cost of your pint of beer is almost certainly likely to rise. If it hasn't already. That's right. We thought it would be a perfect time to bring in the beeronomist, beeronomist, economist. Beeronomist? Beeronomist, thank you. That's you. (laughs) Uh, Who would walk us through the issues surrounding inflation, including the way it affects buyer behavior. All that soon, but first, the news. And our first news item, Chicago, Boston, New York, Los Angeles, most major U- U.S. cities in fact, lost population last year. Small and mid-sized cities were the beneficiaries of this population shift. What's going on? Cities are becoming too expensive, due in large part to high housing costs. And that's especially true in San Francisco, which lost 6.3% of its residents in a single year. Which is a crazy 6.3% in one year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adding to this, by the way, I just read an article last night about, um, uh, actually, was it an article? A tweet, maybe. A tweet that led to something. Anyway, that was looking at, so demographics overall in the United States are down. uh, Population growth in the U.S. is down quite a bit. Some of that, a little bit, that's due to the excessive death rate we've had the last couple of years. A big part of that's having to do with the immigration clamp. uh, uh, clamp down, And then another big part has to do with low birth rates. Right. So add the three things together and population growth at the U.S. is historically low levels. And then, as this uh, suggests, there's also these shifts away from these increasingly expensive uh, cities, which is funny because, you know, that's reverse trend, like the trend right. has been urbanization for a long time. Right. And, and that may be related also, at least marginally, to uh, the pandemic and the shift to remote move. Uh, right remote offices and all that. So maybe you can move to Des Moines and still have your nice job working for a Silicon Valley startup. Yeah, I've been really curious about that. And it's hard. I know people like um, our friend uh, Josh Lehner, the Oregon State economist who um, is interested in looking at these things as well. And it's sort of hard to tease that out of the data exactly how big a big a um, shift that is. Bend, right. Bend, Oregon is one which people suspect there's been a lot of movement to because uh-huh. of the from the Silicon Valley, for example, San Francisco probably too, um, for those reasons. But it's really hard to sort of uh, pin it down in the data. So it's the magnitude of this. Um, so it'd be interesting to know. It's interesting you mentioned Josh, our friend Josh, who was on the podcast some time ago, mm-hmm. uh, because I was alerted to this trend uh, from an article in Willamette Week, our local weekly, in which they talked about Portland. Uh, and one data source said that we were also losing uh, population, although not as quickly. And I think that probably does support the contention that it's housing prices because as expensive as our housing prices are, they're not as bad as Seattle and, and 
San Francisco. Yeah. But then Josh Lehner they quoted, and he said, "Nah, I have a different data source, and it doesn't look like uh, it doesn't look like that." So there you go. <laughs> I trust Josh. I do too. <laughs> All right. Uh, our second item, as a follow-up to the recent Pod Extra, in which we tr- trotted around Portland's new crop of Cascales, we offer this development from across the pond. Milds are back. Mild Ale was the mid-century juggernaut that started dying out in the 1970s with questions of quality. In recent years, it has gotten incredibly scarce, coming to what we might have called, in biological terms, a critically endangered species. Um, while reports are purely anecdotal at this point, the tide may have turned. Across England, people are reporting the reemergence of miles, often in the hands of younger, more fashionable drinkers. All right. I know. I keep seeing this on Twitter, uh, and I haven't seen a single news article that has quantifiable data, but uh, there's just a lot of people pointing, you have, you have photographs of young, fashionable looking people instead of old men dying off, <laughs> drinking these wild ales, which I think is great. Uh, all right, Jeff, the scientist, what's your hypothesis? Uh, I, I don't think there is a way to ever uh, scientifically get at why people drink what they drink. Yeah. Um, it is it is one of it's the good But it appears to be becoming trendy again. Well, I, I hope that that trend then transports itself across the pond exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it, and maybe it will because when we did record that pod extra uh three of the four places we went did have a mild ale yeah. a mild ale on, so which is shocking i mean it blew my mind you never find milds ever anywhere at all nobody cared or wanted uh mild so that's and and um when it was impossible to find a mile and you would find a mile it often wouldn't be that great and so now they're not only making miles but good miles so that might help get right. people on board yeah. taste a good mile and have uh, and uh, learn what uh, um, what a good mile is <laughs> I realized that I caught myself stuck in this sentence <laughs> taste a good mile learn what a good mile tastes like Oh dear. Uh, anyway, you get what I mean. <laughs> Sometimes it would be nice if we if we had never had written at all. We wouldn't, we wouldn't hear. We wouldn't see that sentence with the repetition and stop. It. Uh, I don't know. You have an excuse. Uh, I have no excuse for my mind. It's just not very sharp today. Uh, it's three days straight of skiing in altitude, and, and you should be relaxed. And yeah. well, that's sharp, exactly. It. I'm relaxed, but not sharp. I'm ex- I'm very relaxed, and not my brain is also. Equally relaxed. <laughs> but we're going to talk about beeronomics, man. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be going all, here. Let's all focus the mind. That's right. Ex- excellent. Shall, well, shall we get to that uh, a bit? Let's do. All right. Well, you're going to be uh, the informant in this one, which is why I read the uh, intro. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I expect that you're going to start by giving us kind of an overview of, of inflation. But I'm going to. Yeah. So there's so much to talk about. I'm going to try to do my best to kind of sort of talk about it in a way that's not uh, really dull. Um, but as we've said before, that's why there's that little 15 second jump ahead button, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> One of the challenges is how much to talk about inflation in general and its effects and what, how much to talk about beer. I'll try to do a little bit of both. So as we know, inflation is high, has been high. And for a good portion of the United States, they've never lived through any period, anything quite like this at all, because the last period of high inflation we had was in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And in fact, uh, if you think it's bad now, our our 7.9%, it was 14.8% in March of 1980. And so this was the, Holy crap. the big Paul Volcker, Volcker era of slaying the inflationary dragon by, by raising interest rates super high. And lately, we haven't even been able to get up to 2%. People are complaining that it wasn't high enough. Right? Yeah. So we've been in this crazy era where we've had really low inflation uh, and really low interest rates mm-hmm. and a uh, really strong labor market, just like this perfect storm of everything being amazing, um, which is great, except for the fact that uh, uh, it gets you used to, uh, used to these things, I suppose. I don't accept the fact, but it does. It does get one sort of used to having very low inflation and and very low interest rates, and so that's going to change. Um, what was interesting is that early on we were seeing these inflationary pressures, and we thought it was a lot to do with supply chain issues. 
and there still is issues with supply chains and things that are causing inflationary pressures. But uh, at first, it was thought to be a very transitory thing. This is going to go away quickly once COVID dis- dissipates and supply chains correct themselves. And, uh, but it's becoming less and less clear that's going to happen. And then other shocks happen, things like the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So uh, the Fed's going to going to have to act and is acting now, which means increasing interest rates. I don't know how pedantic to get, but I'll just very quickly, why do they increase interest rates? I was going to jump in and say, hey, so I was going to ask, I think I understand this, but maybe if you spell it out, I'll have more confidence. Yeah. You basically constrict the the money supply. So if you have high interest rates, what do you want to do? You want to save instead of borrow to put it in really simple terms, right? So more people save, fewer people borrow, there's less spending going on out there. You're basically constricting the money supply and uh, putting a clamp on sort of raising uh, prices because the money's just not flowing as much as it was. That's a really sort of shorthand way, but I think that's probably the best way to understand it. That's the way the Fed can manipulate these things. It can only manipulate the, the money supply through these interest rate corrections. And by the way, it sets a, a target rate and manipulates the money supply buys and sells in the open market and stuff like that to meet, to reach that target. It doesn't just, it's not by fiat that interest rates are what they are. They do it through their open market operations. Uh, and so um, what that does, for example, if you're just to bring it back into the sort of craft beery space, if you're a small business person who's interested in expanding their brewery, for example, and wants to get a small business loan to do so, that's going to become much more expensive now um, as interest rates rise. And that's the kind of spending, therefore, that you see less of, right? So it sort of just puts a clamp on the economy and slows things down is kind of the way. And I've mentioned this before, but the big thing that people worry about, uh, economists worry about when they think about how much to worry about inflation, see, I'm doing it to myself again, how much to worry about inflation <laughs> is whether there's a, a, a wage response. And I've mentioned this a few times in, in recent pods, because once that happens, then there's a cycle. Uh, businesses increase wages because they anticipate being able to charge higher prices in the future and and uh, employees need wage hikes because they're seeing higher prices now. And so you, you sort of create this uh, self-reinforcing uh, cycle of um, increasing wages, increasing prices. And that's what gets really hard to stop. So, so I'm guessing that uh, the wage thing is different so wages going up is just like everything else going up. Um, it's a, it's a, for the, for the brewer, it's an increased thing, but it's, it's a little bit different than like if, if gas prices spike, because gas prices might go back down. Is that, is that why wages, wages kind of never go back down. Is that why wages are a bigger deal? Uh, yes, in some, it, that's true that, uh, wages don't tend to go back down. Um, and they get baked into these long-term contracts. If you're at a bigger establishment, you know, unions, for example, bargain over you know a two or three year contract for example uh but the 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 bigger issue is that um once i've committed if i'm a company and once i've committed to higher wages then i need to compensate for that by raising my prices so it almost creates this inevitability of inflation uh because now you've committed to this high price and the only reason you're uh, committed to this higher wage. And the only reason you're willing to commit to a higher wage is because you're confident that you can charge higher prices in the future and sell what you're selling. And that's basically a bet on inflation, sort of. <laughs> so it's this weird sort of self-reinforcing cycle. And that's the thing that freaks economists out because once that cycle starts, it's very hard to stop. Exactly as you mentioned, it's hard to sort of take back wage uh, gains. Um, so you basically kind of just have to so the way the way the Fed does it is basically put the brakes on the economy and might have to do so fairly significantly, which means pretty keeping rate keeping interest rates uh, going up and um, until they reach a fairly high level, which you know a whole generation of people haven't even experienced. They're so used to like three and a half percent mortgages and things like that, which is extraordinary historically. So. Yeah, my first I remember uh, my first mortgage in 1999, dating myself. Uh, Sally and I got it, I think seven and a half percent, seven, seven and a half percent. And because we remembered our parents and their mortgage rates, we thought it was a good deal. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I think in that global sense, when we, when we talk about, I read at the outset, something that I copied off the internet, which was that this, this, uh, interest that 
Inflation rose 7.9% over the past year, mm-hmm. the year ending, I think, February. Yeah. What, how, how do they calculate that? What is the... What are the inputs on that inflation rate? How do we? How do they know it's seven point nine percent? Yeah, that's a an excellent question. Jeff. Well, I think. <laughs> uh, basically, they just keep track of a specific basket of goods, and they take the same items and and look at the prices you know a year ago versus the prices today. Again, in a simplified version. So uh, you might hear about sort of core inflation. They try to uh, take out things that are particularly volatile, like energy prices. Um, and I don't don't ask me what the current specific basket of goods is, is because I'm not a macroeconomist. I don't follow these things, but it's a it's just a, a set of very specific items, um, and they just uh, look at how those prices change. So it's basically just an index, I guess is the best, which is why they call it the index. <laughs> and they uh, that's interesting that they have, they have adjusted that over time. What what inputs to use? I've often wondered about that because eventually, uh, you know, things. The basket, yeah. historical the basket does change over yeah. time. Um, and so they do they do swap things out. And again, I don't know the technicalities of how then they adjust for that. Um, I think they, you know, at the time they swap things out, then there's a price conversion. So if I'm swapping out a what something old, uh, um, uh, you know, a washboard. <laughs> And swap, and so, yeah, type. There you go. A type, swapping out a typewriter for a notebook computer, then I would look at that price conversion at that point, and then I would take take it from there on. Now, one of the now we're really getting into the weeds, but because I'm an economist, I can't stop myself. Uh, one of the interesting criticisms, oh, criticisms of this index is that is it how meaningful it is for a, a, a typical consumer? Well, a typical consumer can adjust their basket of goods based on relative prices, and so when you have this index based on a set a fixed basket of goods that does tell you about price increases. It doesn't necessarily tell you about the effective or real price increase as it affects American consumers. So in other words, if beef goes up, I'll buy more chicken, right? Right, right. But, but instead, we're still keeping track of beef. And so that's just one little minor point. Uh, but let's bring this to beer. All right. Uh, and talk about what's happening in uh, in the beery world. You said and, the magic word. I'm going to give oh, you good. talk. So this is the cue to open beer. <laughs> Because listeners of this podcast are probably most concerned about how this is going to affect beer prices. Indeed. Well, certainly it's an interesting frame to use in any case. So let's do. (laughs) Let's do. So I'll just give you uh, um, uh, sort of a rundown of some of the stuff that matters to beer. First off, how much has beer prices uh, uh, gone up? They... They've actually been fairly limited in the price increases we've seen so far, which maybe isn't so surprising uh, because producers are seeing these price increases all the time, but they're very loath to pass these price increases on to consumers. And again, if they think that these are temporary price shocks, then they're not going to be um, as willing to raise prices. But once sort of the inflationary expectation is there, then it's like, okay, my consumers are going to expect that their pint might cost a dollar or 50 cents more. And so I'll go ahead and and price that in. So there's a lot of psychology that goes on, which we'll we'll get back to. Uh, but apparently in February 22, this is from Bart Watson, I believe, of uh, the uh, Bruce Association, the, the um, increase in beer at home, so packaged beer was 2.2%. Um, so it's going up, but it's not you know, Way lower. We're, we're lower than 7.9%. It's not 7.9%. And again, that's a whole basket of goods. So there's lots of things in there. Food prices have been lower uh, in general. And I thought I had a little stat there. But uh, uh, it is, however, this monthly change, uh, Bart says, is actually the third highest since, uh, um, or at least since 1969. I'm looking at the graph he, he said here. <laughs> That's pretty. When you're when you're talking about fifty, well, I was going to say it's, it's data were kept, and it probably is true, but I don't actually have that. So I'll just say what I know, which is since nineteen. Uh, there was a period, apparently, in like nineteen ninety one or something like that, where beer prices uh, rocketed up. Uh, but anyway, so that so even though it's it's fairly modest, that is a monthly increase, and it's and it's it's pretty. Expensive. Um, pretty uh, remarkable in that sense. All right, so what's going on for beer uh, con- uh, consumers? Well, we've talked about uh, wages in terms of inflationary cycle, but it's also true that uh, labor markets are tight, at least in the United States. 
um, partly due to COVID and then other issues maybe surrounding things like social safety net issues, childcare and things like that. Anyway, so uh, labor costs have gone up. Um, but one of the big issues that you know a lot about is the uh, world barley harvest. I do know about that. Sorry, I'm reading about this beer that we have. There's incredibly amusing copy. Uh, oh, you poured me a beer. So let yeah, let me uh, let me take should... a moment Sorry. to Sorry. wet my lip. Oh, this is good. I forgot that. Uh, this beer was given to me by Ben Keen, uh, the writer and editor who now lives in uh, Seattle. Mm -hmm. And he was down here doing the judging of the OBAs, mm -hmm. which is happening now. I'll be doing that. Oregon tomorrow. Beer Awards. Oregon Beer Awards. For our listeners. Uh, and so he brought us a Cloudburst Kevin, which says on the on the, on the the can, a small bash lager. But, that, but if you read the... Oh, I was about to say, if you, if you put a blindfold on me and had me sniff it, it is longer only in the narrowest sense. Okay. Here's the here's the copy, <laughs> uh, and this was this was uh, canned just a month ago, so it's pretty fresh. Geez, Kevin Davy at Wayfinder Beer might have really started something with this whole cold IPA thing. Look at what he did, that little jerk. Brewers are all over the country are making them. It's like a disease, but a delicious one. And then it, the copy continues for a really long time. <laughs> um, but this is, this one is made with uh, uh, a whole basket of different hops, including a couple of old school ones, Simcoe Cascade, uh, but also Citra Mosaic and Warrior and others. So um, it does not smell like a lager. Okay. So define cold IPA. Yeah. Kevin, I, Kevin Davey at Wayfinder is the guy who kind of invented this style. Yeah, they're very proud of that. They're very proud of that. And he always just says, Ooh, it tastes like cold. So I call it that because the truth is it's not fermented cold. It's made with a lager yeast, but it's fermented warm. So it's, the cold is a, a, a weird kind of misnomer in a way. But it's just a, a way of getting a, a kind of cream yeast. Yeah. Yeah. You want a, a real crispness out of the beer. Mm. Uh, typically, Kevin believes that you should be uh, thinning the malt uh, body with, with uh, corn or maybe sugar. Mm -hmm. um, and just it should be a bright West Coast style IPA. Mm. So. Well, this is delightful. It speaking is. of, it it has that classic Cloudburst uh, signature, which I've grown so accustomed to. He, he kind of makes cold IPA style beers, anyways. His beers are very dry, mm -hmm. uh, but they're also kind of hazy and juicy. So dry, hazy, and juicy. Yeah. And this is what kind of what cold IPAs are. Um, so it's right in well, right in the wheelhouse. Lovely. So you were just talking about the bad barley harvest before I distracted you with this beer. Okay, so the bad barley harvest in the United States uh, happened this past year. And do you know stats, like how far down yeah, the production I, was? Yeah, it was way far down. I can give you uh, rough stats. It was something like uh, down uh, a third. I think the I think it was like the, the, the whole the – whole, uh, uh, acreage harvested was something like 71 percent of normal mm, okay. so it was it was bad i mean like not, not just a, a few percentage points it was it's going to have really big ramifications and the barley that came out was um not as good very high protein so they're going to have to blend it with other stuff um so it, yeah bad. so and apparently there's other stuff going on well most recently the invasion of ukraine which is also a fairly big barley producer let's see uh Ukraine, uh, and dang it, I didn't cite my source, so I'll just have to pretend I know this. And <laughs> uh, apparently, it produces 20% of the world's barley used in beer. Oh, is that true? I, I, I couldn't find that stat because malting barley is different than other barley. So. Yeah, and it's very specific. It's the world's barley used in beer. Nice. So, uh, yeah, take that as you will. And I, and I'm, I have the source here somewhere. Um, uh, uh, but it, uh, the only thing I can say is that I've tried to stick to reputable, <laughs> reputable places. Um, uh, so there's that. Uh, the barley market also has some weird dynamics, and this is what I was uh, teasing Jeff with because I found this great blog post from uh, Sim uh, Simpsons Malts in the UK, uh, which basically talks about the dynamics of rural barley markets. So a couple things like uh, there's been a lengthy trade dispute between Australia and China. So China would get a lot of barley from Australia, hmm. but 
because of this trade dispute, China's gone looking for barley elsewhere, and that's raised prices. Uh, pr uh, primarily France is where they're getting their barley from. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not just uh, a single market for barley. It turns out that uh, even malting barley, and then of course there's malting and feed barley, but they're all part of this sort of uh, 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 market for um, uh, grains, uh, including wheat and corn. So when the uh, wheat harvest was poor, people would then substitute barley for wheat. This kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier with, with, with the individual. You're like, you don't buy beef, you buy chicken. Yeah, so, yeah. But, and, I, and I didn't, so this is what... The commodity market apparently adjusts itself too. Yeah, so this is what Mike Dagg, so this is what he says, which I found really fascinating. Uh, consumers, particularly the animal feed compound industry, were quick to pick up on these sort of varying uh, uh, trends. So um, uh, the global corn and wheat production uh, has was low in 2021 um, relative to its 2020 crop. And so as a result, the global value of wheat and corn began to rise and barley followed because uh, people switched from wheat and corn to barley. So consumers, particularly the animal feed compound industry, were quick to pick up on this trend. They began to steadily increase their use of barley in animal feed rations. By late spring 2021, the value of UK feed barley had risen 60 pounds per ton from the values witnessed during the 2020 harvest. Uh, and so this then diverts malting barley into feed barley, um, as I understand. Yeah, probably really tasty barley. <laughs> well, what yeah, I was I trying like to get at is, is whether um, they're just buying malting barley uh, and then using it in feed production, if it's if the price differential is that big, because malting barley is more expensive than feed barley, right. or how much, how quickly it is, or how different it is for a farmer to to plant and raise feed barley versus malting barley, and if that's part of it, just the, the shift in production itself. All right, we are pretty far into the weeds. So anyway, barley. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> thank you for talking about. Well, uh, the, the whole point is that it's not just the barley harvest that matters; it's also the wheat and corn harvest that matters in terms of barley markets. But either way, barley is up two hundred percent. the The cost of barley is up two hundred percent in the last two years. And that is without this Ukraine thing. And Ukraine is something like, uh, I think it's nineteen percent of all barley grown on Earth uh, of all of all type if i if i remember that statistic correctly which you know if, if 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 the corn if a corn shortage drives barley prices up then clearly barley shortages in ukraine are going to drive barley prices up in america even if we don't use ukrainian barley yeah and again it's not just barley but wheat is up 55 percent of course wheat is an ingredient in some beers but also that's going to drive barley prices up the russia and ukraine make up 28 percent of the world's traded wheat uh so that's uh, a big a big factor. Uh, aluminum is up 24% in the last six months. And then you might have read that the Ball Manufacturing Corporation, we've talked about this, has put in a minimum can order of a million cans. They delayed that for a little while, but that's still coming. And now apparently, because uh, this is the way markets work, now there's a missing market for smaller shipments of cans. So there's traders who come in, middlemen now, who will buy a million cans and then sell them off in smaller portions. But of course, take a cut yes for not, a premium. Not a value price uh yeah uh well uh yeah exactly uh so uh i just read one article that talked about upslope brewing in in uh in colorado uh their cost of cans went up 45 percent because of both the cost of aluminum and these minimum orders and that made them have to raise a six-pack uh price up by two bucks yeah Okay, so these are so these are all the basically the trends that are happening to, to craft brewers. And I guess petroleum will probably factor into that too if it stays high for a while. Yeah, and then I wrote down here energy price, fuel costs as well. So it costs a lot of money to heat a lot of water, and uh, so um, breweries are big users of fuel as well. Right, and put them on trucks to ship them across the country, and so on. So trucks to across the country, refrigerate things like that. Yeah, yeah. So. There's inflationary pressures everywhere, and they're pretty extreme. I mean, 200% increase in the price of barley, and barley's, you know, the main ingredient in beer. Um, and I didn't even mention hops, which... Um, I think hops are relatively stable. I was about to say, which, uh, which for now, um, I think is um, not one of the, the areas, but with a disruption in Europe, who knows?
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Weirdly enough, Ukraine. Yeah, uh, well, just things like fuel prices. You might the ship shipping costs. Now that's not a big deal for us here in the Pacific Northwest, but people who have to get their hops shipped across. Right. Ukraine is actually a producer, of, uh, a grower of hops too, which is interesting. Oh, really? I learned about that um, when that hops report that I quoted in a couple of podcasts ago. Nice. Um, I was looking through the international stats, and yeah, they, they actually grow more than the UK. So it's not a it's not a huge amount because the UK is also not a huge grower at this point. But right. um, yeah, it's probably mostly for domestic. Uh, Okay, so let's take. I'm gonna. So I'll, I'll try to speed things up because I'm. <laughs> once you start putting numbers and stats in front of me, I get really excited and go really slow. But there's two two parts of this now. What does a producer do who's facing these costs, and how do they think about uh, prices of their own products, and then how do consumers respond to prices? And so I'll talk a little bit about the psychology of price. Uh, so the first thing is as a as a producer, there are ways, just like we talked about with the consumer price index, there are ways where consumers can adjust to uh, to these changing prices. And of course, brewers can as well. They can use different types of malt. They can use different grains even uh, perhaps. Um, but uh, they can maybe package in bottles and not cans or they can get together and have a big shipment among a number of brewers. So there's ways that you can try to save on cost, but there's only so much you can do. Uh, one interesting aspect is that uh, the bigger breweries have greater ability to fight these costs. For example, a big brewery might have have a bunch of futures contracts in, in these commodities, grains, things that allow them to buy at a lower price now. And these small brewers generally buy on spot markets. So see these price increases earlier. Right. And so these big brewers uh, haven't raised prices much. And that's one reason why they also can adjust. Uh, uh, if you're making a beer that's not particularly distinct, then it's probably easy to adjust the ingredients to keep making an indistinct beer. Shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just put it that way. <laughs> uh, and then they have economies of scale, which is a big deal uh, and allows them, of course, to, um, uh, to produce at a lower price per barrel just in general. So now the question is, if you're a brewer and you think all these price pressures and you're worried about demand, especially after COVID, where you've had like draft sales are way down and you've had to switch to package and you probably be really worried about the market you're able to serve, you might be really worried about increasing prices. Um, one, as I said, one of the nice things is that there's inflation everywhere. And so people are now sort of baking into their, their expectations. And this is where we get into the psychology of price. So... Uh, uh, one of the problems in any business when you raise prices is that people have this sort of mental uh, anchor uh, um, about what they think beer should cost. So, for example, when I go into a, a grocery store, well, a few years ago, I would go into a grocery store and a six pack of, of craft beer, I may think nine, ten bucks for a good good craft beer. Right. And if it was on sale for seven, you're like, ooh. If it was on sale for seven or eight, yeah, then I would be like, yes. And we'll talk about that <laughs> psychology in a moment. But just this this price anchoring uh, is, a, is a really powerful psychological um, uh, uh, what reality, psychological aspect of, of consumers. And so if I'm, a, if I'm a, a craft brewer, I might get really worried about having to raise my six pack one or two bucks. But in a time of inflation where people are seeing prices rise everywhere, that kind of dislodges that anchor to sort of torture the metaphor. You raise the anchor a little bit and you start drifting along. And so you, it sort of resets that expectation. So I think now for craft brewers, there is this a bit of flexibility now, this sort of built-in acceptance of higher prices that's going right. to happen to the consumer. So I think that there's there should be a lot less um, worry about that in this current moment i do wonder just this is a beer drinker talking not mm -hmm. an economist but um there are some products that we have no idea what they really cost we kind of have some sense but you know you go by your you, you're going you're going through the grocery store and you're you know you're buying bread and macaroni and cheese and see what my diet's like yeah yeah uh, uh, and you don't know exactly you know what those products are supposed to taste but you get to the grocery you get to the, the cooler and it's like a, it's like a, a tank of gas you know you, exactly right. you really know what a, a six pack of beers should cost yeah. so you're, you're you're alert when it starts going up yeah and and this is one of these things about beer so you know i might be producing i'm really bad at coming up with examples today but i might be producing something that 
that people will bite by once a year or once every few years. And so there isn't like a big expectation. But beer is something that consumers tend to buy regularly. And so they really do get sort of this expectation of price or this anchor. Um, and so, yeah, so, so it's true that there are plenty of goods in which it's not nearly as strong. So um, one of the big insights into sort of consumer behavior and prices comes from Richard Thaler, and he talked about transaction utility or just general mental accounting. And this has a lot to do with not just the price, but the, uh, uh, the value you get from, I'm going to simplify this, but the value you get from getting a good deal. Thank you for simplifying. Yeah. So you talked, well, you talked about uh, when there's a, you know, a craft beer six pack that's on sale for a couple bucks. Um, You, uh, the weird psychological thing is that not only do you like the fact that you can buy the beer for less money, but you actually get actual pleasure utility from that fact Uh that that you enjoy that six pack more than you would enjoy it otherwise. Right. You give it a break. It's the same beer. Yeah, but because you got that beer at a lower price, and in fact, it's really extreme when you get to free things. Like we tend to covet things we got for free. Oh, really? Yes. Instead of devaluing them completely. Instead of like, yeah, this is just a freebie. So huh. yeah, it's probably not the same thing as swag. But right, if you can, if you uh, if you um, enter a little contest and get, I don't know, you know, a free case of good beer, right? You tend to th- think. To value that very highly. I should give away my books. Then people would really value yeah, them. That's right. They would they would get tons of utility and you'd be broke. Right? Even more broke than I am now. Uh so that I think might become an important I mean, I've talked about sort of price competition, how I think it's gonna be as craft beer markets mature, I've mentioned this, I think that the price competition is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Because if everybody makes fantastic IPA, then and I know that there's 10 different breweries that all make a fantastic IPA and then I'm in the market and I'll take the one that, that's cheaper because that's part of the mental accounting. We like these relative values. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. Makes, that makes total sense as a beer drinker. Yeah. So it might be, I might be less concerned absolutely whether the six-pack is 8, 10, 12, 13 bucks. But if this six-pack is 8 bucks and the next one is 10 bucks or this one's 10 and the, next, and the other ones are 12, then I tend to value that highly. It's also interesting uh, that at a grocery store, you're going to have differential pricing. You know, the, the break side may be more expensive than the Freem, which may be less expensive than the Rubens or whatever. And when you go to a pub, you can sample around because they're all the same price unless they're some kind of special beer, you know. But all the IPAs are going to be the same price. So that's when we really do our sampling. But when we go to the grocery store, we're always looking for a value. Is it, is it, I'm just cluing into the psychology business here. Yeah. And I was going to, I don't know how much time we have. I was going to sort of uh, also take that into um, packaging because you wrote uh, a blog post recently about uh, Freem, I think it is, that's coming up with new packaging in cans or new labeling in cans. Okay, it's, uh, they're switching from their 500 milliliter bottles to 16 ounce cans. Like specialty cans. Yeah, it's just part of their line. So they have their regular their regular line that just goes into six packs uh, cans now. But um, they have this pretty big vast line like if you wanted to buy a hellas lager it used to come in a uh 500 milliliter bottle the german style right and now they're switching all this over to four packs just like everybody else's 16, 16 ounce can four packs yeah. yeah yeah well i was thinking about the branding aspect because as we've talked about many times in the past that as an experience good as uh as consumers don't necessarily know what it tastes like until they open the can i think that branding is going to be ever more important in other words, I trust Freem as a brewery I know. I trust that they make a good product, and therefore I'm willing to give them a try, maybe over a, uh, another type of beer that I haven't. And that might be become, that might that trend might be more pronounced as beer prices get higher and higher and become a more significant part of a person's budget. Yeah, it makes sense to me. So um, this is my theory. <laughs> uh, so I think that that's. Um, uh, breweries that can build, I'm trying to decide how far I want to push. I was going to say an inflation-proof brand, but uh, which is too extreme. But the idea is that if you can build a good, reliable brand, then you can probably bring consumers along with you as you raise prices for those for those reasons. Branding is one of these really weird things. And you, and you probably get into a bad situation if you've built your brand on being cheap and then you get into this, people 
then you're kind of compelled to always be cheap. And as things go up, you're, you're kind of in this downward spiral because you've created a bargain uh, brand. Yeah, that's true. That's true too. And I was thinking of, of breweries who kind of do lots and lots of one-offs and have lots of different funky labels here and there and don't have a really strong logo on their on their can. I right. This is all speculation on my part, but I I think that those those uh, breweries might have a harder time when these price increases happen because people might, when these price pressures get high, just sort of um, uh, revert to the to the tried and trusted brands that they're they're uh, loyal to. Yeah, I think that's quite possible. Uh, speaking of. This beer that I gotta finish this that, one. That, uh, I know I just cracked another beer. I'm one ahead of you, but I want to go back to the uh, Cloudburst just to mention this. Portlanders, uh, if you're listening to this on X-ray FM, uh, which I, I hope you're listening to this on X-ray FM, uh, you may not be familiar with Cloudburst because they don't ship their beer down here. You actually have to go to Seattle to get it. Uh, they're one of the best. Worth the trip. You know, I think, yeah, they're one of the best breweries in America right now, and they're making extremely good. Uh, hoppy ales, especially, uh, or in this case, hoppy lagers. And this thing tastes like spring to me. This is a perfect beer. <laughs> I look outside and I can see the the blossoms on my magnolia tree. And this is all sunshiny and light and bright and delightful. So yes. I would I would <laughs> I would be happy to drink that a lot of that. And uh, we have this second beer which we just poured, which is the, my last precious can. Uh, from <laughs> I was very excited when you popped this thing out. Yes, this is this is pretty nice. So Rubens, uh, which is a sponsor of my blog. Um, and if you haven't seen, we're doing a, a, pro- a project there where we come up with an idea for a, uh, uh, a story idea, and then I write it. And it, it almost never has even anything to do with Rubens. Like the last time I wrote about Hair of the Dogs, here the uh, uh, Alan's friends at Hair of the Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's been a wonderful uh, partnership for me. But anyway, they sent me this new 10th anniversary series they're doing. This is called Dream Team, and it recalls the uh, three-way IPA, which kind of launched the three-way into its hyperdrive. Which, uh, but you know, uh, like five or six years ago, probably with Rubens. Great notion of Fort George. Mm-hmm. So they got the they got the whole gang back together again for the tenth anniversary, and this is what we're drinking. And man, this beer is so good. And a few years ago, we visited Rubens right at that moment mm. when they were making that three way. Right. Okay. Yes, because we talked about it, and uh, uh, and that's how we where we learned that it was like a real collaboration between three brewers. It mm-hmm. wasn't just uh, slap a couple names on a beer um, and call it a collaboration. That the three of them. Uh, collaborated on the recipe, then tested the sort of the initial test batches and sort of um, together narrowed in on what became the three of that year. And that's probably, I don't know how typical that process is. I know, I'm sure that's what they all aspire to. And I'm sure it varies year to year, but that was a fantastic beer. Anyway. It, it really was. And uh, this is a fantastic beer. So if you're in the Northwest, you can probably get this one in, in, in Portland. Um, you certainly get it in Seattle, uh, anywhere in Washington, man, it's so good. It's also, it's, it's weirdly kind of like a cloudburst, uh, in that it's, it's a little bit drier, a lighter, drier, yeah, light, yeah lighter, uh, but just super juicy too. Mm-hmm. So very, very, uh, very sessionable. Oh, that's wonderful. Very nice. Yeah. So this is the, what are they calling it? Dream team. I think the label is so high stylized it's actually oh, hard to kind of perfect perfect segue back to what i was trying to the point because i am going to get this back to the psychology of price so yeah. one of the things we know uh uh, uh thanks to kahneman tversky is that uh there's a lot of things that go on when people associating with price and one of the things is that value is sort of fungible and my favorite experiment is the one where they gave people a a, a picture of a keyboard. It was exactly the same keyboard, a computer keyboard. Had all the same, you know, it was precisely the same. They gave it to everybody. And they wrote a price down on this piece of paper that corresponded to the last two digits of the person's social security number. So basically random price for everybody. And the people who had high social security numbers in their last two digits, uh, when asked to value it, like how much would do I value this, would put much higher prices. Than those. So they, the published price is a signal. And they take that as a signal of the value you get from there. So we've talked about price as a signal before. Yeah. But that also then um, uh, can relate to the 
branding, I think. So um, not just having a high price, but having a brand that you associate with quality, I think is really important because, you know, we're lazy. We use her heuristics to make mm -hmm. these decisions. And so I look at a Freem bottle and, oh, Freem's a good brewer uh, and it's a little more expensive, but it's probably worth it because that price is probably signaling that this is an exceptional beer added to the fact that I know Freem's a good brewer. I'll buy that one. So does that work if you don't know the brewery? Let's say you go up there and uh, there's two there's two beers and you don't know anything about either of them. Yep. One is a four pack for ten dollars and one's a four pack for twelve dollars. Yeah. Well, think about how you buy wine. Think about how consumers buy wine, right? You're always told that oh, you know, you don't need to spend more than fifteen dollars to have a great bottle of wine. But of course, I don't know. And so you go into the store and you're thinking, well, here's this thirty five dollar bottle of wine. I bet this is pretty good, right? So you use the price as a signal, even though, especially when, you know, because we don't know, I don't know everything about wine. I know very little about wine. And so, uh, so people take the price of itself as a, as a signal. I was talking about this competing trends of high price signaling quality, but value being important to consumers. Uh, what's going to happen now with high, with higher inflation, I suspect maybe that second aspect is more important than the first, which is why I think it's ever more important to build a brand. Uh, that consumers trust and so they sort of identify as being a high quality brand. Um, as I joked about before, uh, wait a minute, <laughs> did I joke about that before after I lost my audio? If you're a, if you're a brewer, the best thing to do is to set a high price, to look higher, raise your prices, but then offer a discount. Yeah, that was such a pro tip that I well, it's, it's, it bears repeating. If if, if, uh, if we said it before or after, right. I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how how human minds work. Yeah, uh, and I think that you know I do think that the the I've mentioned this before, but I think the worry for a craft brewer is that price competition as prices just get higher and higher, that's going to make consumers probably more um, sensitive to value, and so being able to offer beer at a at a lower price point is probably going to uh, be even more important in the future which is going to of course uh, advantage those bigger breweries that have economies of scale yeah uh... on the other hand craft brew as a sort of a super hyper local phenomena i think has some of this um I was going to say inflationary defense, but basically it's sort of protected, I guess, a little bit because I go to my local brew pub more because it's local and because they have good beer and I'm not going to be shopping around for other local brew pubs. Yeah, <laughs> I do I do wonder how it will affect it in, in, in kind of like I used to go out to the pub uh, once a week because, you know, on Friday we always got to the pub, but now things are more expensive. So I still go out, I still have a good time. I still spend as much money as I did before, but I only go out three times a month. Right. Um, that based on what I've seen in the pubs around town, if it's a COVID hangover or whatever, but um, they seem to be not quite as busy as they were before COVID, um, which was also before the inflationary thing and, and the price of beer going up, the price of everything going up. I mean, yeah. my God, burger, $15 burger is like standard now, which I still can't wrap my brain <laughs> I know. That is kind of the crazy thing. Still kind of a crazy thing. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. It's not just us. Uh, yeah. How much do you think people think when they're heading out to go to a pub uh, the prices being charged. Yeah, I don't. I never notice it uh, until the the check comes, and at which point my yeah. my ability to adjust my behavior is sort of lost. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll sit in a pub and all of a sudden realize I'm being charged like nine dollars a pint, and I'll think, oh, yeah, I do. That's from, expensive. Yeah, from time to time, I notice the seven dollar pint uh, when I'm drinking, and that seems like a a pretty spendy pint. But I think it's probably pretty typical. I think I. Yeah, nowadays. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, we're just going to, I guess, have to get used to all of this. Because I mean, yeah. my theory is that it's, I mean, when you're in a grocery store, you know, again, it's a lot easier to collect information on a bunch of beers and their prices because you're standing right in front of all of that and then act on that. When you're going to local brew, uh, breweries or brew pubs or pubs in general, then it's a lot less easy to collect and you're going there for other reasons as well. And so the marginal price of a pint of beer might not be as big a factor. So you might, if, if you're a publican, you might feel a little bit more comfortable about raising prices um, than if you're relying a lot on package sales. That's where I think it's, it's stressful. Yeah, I think, and I think all of these things, of course, beer prices going up are not happening in isolation. So everything else is going up too. So people are having to make 
right. That was my point about anchoring. So we're yeah. expecting higher prices across the board. And um, but it's also true that uh, one last little data point that I want to throw in here: it's true that wages aren't keeping up right now, which doesn't surprise surprise me given the fact that uh, prices are skyrocketing so quickly at the moment. But um, only uh, uh, like twenty percent of workers, uh, I think, was the stat. Are, have had their wages keep up with inflation. And so most workers are under water. Though it does seem to be the case that the people who are doing best in terms of wage, seeing wages go up are the people at the bottom. So that's at least one. Yeah, there's really tight labor markets for those for those jobs right now. And so that's bidding wages higher. So that's that's good. But it also just means that in this sort of transitory period where we're experiencing high inflation and we haven't gotten it back down and wages are slow to catch up, that there might be this uh, moment of extreme price pressure. That people are going to be very price sensitive and might, perish the thought, at the margin, switch from craft brew to more macro brew. Yeah, I bet they just drink less beer, but uh, who can say? Maybe they- Or drink less beer. Yeah. Or drink less beer. All right. Well, that has been a pretty good- uh, look into inflation. Please, if you have questions, if uh, you'd like to delve into this more, send it to uh, Jeff at BeerManablog.com or uh, one of our many social media accounts, and we would love to hear from you. On Twitter, at BeerManapod. That's right. On Instagram, at BeerManapod. But we should probably head to the mailbag, which is a little bit full these days, which is kind of cool. Wonderful. So our first uh, mailbag entry is from our good friend, Bjorn Moskard, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> he told us. We went through this whole thing about how to pronounce it. And of course, we've forgotten because we're both old and have terrible minds. That's right. It's not Moskard, which is how it's spelled, but I think it's most. Moskard. Moskard, something like that. Now, Bjorn, you're going to have to correct us again. I know. Uh, Bjorn writes, I was listening to Beervana Show 155 in which you talked about the decline of total beer consumption over the past 30, 40 years. I was wondering if an increase in AVB could be part of the reason. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's. Quite a, a very good question. It's a really intriguing prospect. It seems to me that ABB has gone up over the last 10, 20 years with the popularity of all the IPA types, the high gravity stouts, and so on. Uh, so he was just uh, kind of pondering how this might might well, factor in. Like, are, are alcohol units actually going down? That's, or- yeah, it would be. It would uh, yeah, it would be fascinating to know how much within the beer category alcohol consumption has gone up or down, even though volume has gone down i would just say that a lot of the these it's still dominated by macro brewers and it, i don't think abv has changed much amongst those beers it, it is that's true but um i think i think it would be interesting to look at because the most popular style in craft beer is ipa which is definitely stronger than budweiser but light for sure yeah and uh, it's something on the order of uh, fifth of the market, maybe something like right. that. Is is I is craft beer, right? And not all craft beers IPA, but but a lot of it is. So it, you know, it, it's actually a, a decent enough chunk that it would be interesting to find out. Is you know, if you, if you calculated alcohol units and then compared that, to yeah. Consumption, My point is, I don't think it would flip. I don't think it would flip the trend, but I do think it would lower or, or flatten that trend line. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a very good point, actually. I really a, do. Yeah, I do too. I think it's a great point. Because, like, you know, uh, if I'm Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo or Pat, because I don't want to be binary. Uh, <laughs> and I, I used to buy a six pack of Bud, you know, for the Friday night after work or something like that. I now only need maybe a four pack of IPA. Yeah. And this is clearly a consideration at the pubs, right? Uh, I could have three, uh, absolutely three low alcohol yeah. beers or, you know, one possibly or two pints of stronger beer. Yeah. And Which is why, by the way, just to, just to circle all the way back to the beginning, it's so nice to have low alcohol beers on pub menus because I'm old, but that's not just it. I like to sit around for three, four hours and chat and enjoy beer and not be 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 uh, super drunk or hungover the next morning. Or and it's good for the brewery if we buy three pints, so yeah. that's nice for them too. But, so uh, um, yeah, uh, great great note, Bjorn. You want to take the next one? I will. Let me flip the page. 
the, first, the first two are, are, are repeat commenters, and the, the last one is a new commenter. Uh, Kyle Novice. Thank you for the pronunciation note there, because I would have forgotten again. Yep. But Kyle is a frequent commentator, so thank you. Hi, Kyle. Uh, could you clarify the most basic contours of what makes a beer cask? Mm -hmm. oh, excellent question. I try to replicate cask as a home brewer using only bottled conditioned beer, but I'm also unclear about how far I'm straying from the essential experience by doing that. Also, shouldn't we applaud the way Hair of the Dog is ending? Uh, on the owner's own terms at retirement, maintaining independence while I hope providing a solid living to him and his employees. That seems about an ideal business model as I personally could imagine for myself. So two-part question. First, Jeff, yeah. what is the essential aspect of cask? I mean, cask really refers to uh, a beer that's on a dispense system, so not something that's packaged in a can or a bottle. Mm -hmm. um, you, so when you, you can have bottle-conditioned beer, which is a lot like a cask-conditioned beer in that you're, you're re-fermenting it in the vessel, which is what happens. Creating carbonation that way. Right, which is what happens in the in, in the cask. But uh, it's just a kind of a different presentation when you do it in, in the cask. So the way, uh, to the, the <laughs> specifically what happens is the brewery will uh, ferment the beer out. They'll either ferment it all the way out and then re-carbonate uh, uh, it with, with uh, the addition of yeast and sugar, or they'll just casket before it's completely finished mm -hmm. uh, uh, carbonating so that in the cask it will carbonate naturally and it, ca it carbonates to a lower uh, degree of carbonation so mm -hmm. um, maybe about two-thirds as, as as effervescent as a regular beer right um, and that natural carbonation is the thing that that injects the beer into your glass that's in a nutshell that's the basic thing about it cask beer but if you if you buy if you go to if you're in if you're in uh <laughs> these beers are going to well <laughs> you could be in india and having a cask beer you could. it's unlikely but <laughs> i was thinking about india pale ales and i got all confused about where i was in the country <laughs> if you were uh in england and you bought a fuller's uh, london pride in the bottle and you bought one at the, the pub and you poured the bottle out next to the one that you had on cask you would notice they would be distinctly different beers and right. it's because the way that recarbonation happens in the vessel, that little tiny vessel, it just, just doesn't do it the same thing as it does in the bigger vessel. So um, that that's what's going on in the cask. Do you have anything to add? Uh, no. I think, yeah, but, but I think that's the, the, uh, the point I suppose to make here is that the cask is really about the way in which you, you prepare the beer and serve the beer. Right. Yeah, and it can be any style. So yeah, so it's nothing. There's nothing inherent about the beer itself necessarily. It's really just about that. And so the bottle, the, the way that you, you know, as a home brewer, we we bottle condition the beer is sort of a similar process, but different. Yeah, and if you do it as a as a home brewer, I'm just gonna make the plug. The secrets of master brewers will tell you exactly how to do that process. Excellent. That is go. a good plug. Yeah. Secrets of master brewers available at any independent bookstore near you, or they can order it for you. I'm sure. That's right. Or if you have to, go to Amazon and get it. <laughs> That's right. And Hair of the Dog. Uh, okay. So second part is Hair of the Dog. We mentioned this. Hair of the Dog is closing down. Hair of the Dog has an outsized influence on craft beer, probably around the world, honestly, uh, but certainly in the Pacific Northwest right. uh, due to, at the time, these insanely giant beers that Alan Sprintz was was brewing and, ser and, and serving. And he announced that he's closing his whole operation. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no heir to the heir of the dog uh, <laughs> empire. <laughs> he, he, he did mention that he's keeping everything in case his, his kids, he's got three of them, want to do it. They could call it heir, heir of the dog. Heir of the dog. Yeah, <laughs> so just like you uh, noticed that. Very nice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's great to go out on your own terms. I'm sure there's a little bit of – I would imagine he's slightly wistful that it's gone and that, that it won't carry on. Um, so I, it, it, the essence of the question to me is, is it better to have a business that then outlives you, that you've created something that then has its own life or that it has its natural life as you have your own sort of natural working life? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I definitely think it's, uh, and Alan told me this when I interviewed him, he said he, it would have made him very sad to have sold the brewery and then have that beer change or be treated differently. Right. And he didn't. He didn't want to really risk that. It, yeah. something, he didn't get rich making this. So the only thing he had was the legacy 
of that that beer and he didn't want that legacy to change so you know in, in buddhism uh we always talk about the the the, the partings like every uh you know all 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 meetings end in parting all births end in death and so on and um whether you're talking about mine Stefaner, uh or hair of the dog these these breweries will end eventually and right. i think i think you're right kyle that uh, ending it on your own terms, you do have control over the way the thing ends, and ending it well is good. So um, we always, if somebody makes it to a hundred years old and they're sharp as a tack and they had a great life, and everybody loves them, and everybody shows up, we feel like they, <laughs> you did it as well as you could do it in yeah. this life. So yeah, I think that's exactly right about here. The dog. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers to to Alan Sprints and his remarkable run. Indeed. Uh, last one. Did you do the last one? Am I? Uh, I did. I did, Kyle. So you're next. All right. John Newman writes, in listening, I noticed several times that Patrick, oh yeah, this is a Canadian thing, so it's a good thing I'm reading it, mentioned the Canadian plastic milkshakes he was familiar with as a child. He wondered why the United States has never done plastic milk thing. Others may have already commented, and they, they have not, John, uh, but I'm letting you know that here in Portland, there was a plastic milk container and jugs. As long time Portland, we received Alpenrose milk on our porch uh, in plastic bags that fit into a jug. This had to be late into the early sixty or late in, into the late sixties, early seventies, but it did happen. So, oh, that's fabulous! Oh, there you go. What, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, this is a deep cut. So this yeah. is this is uh, the sort of the adjunct of the the Beervana podcast. This is the Milkvana podcast. Milkvana podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my father didn't move to Portland until uh, nineteen eighty one. And so this was prior to my experience. By the way, Alpenrose Dairy will now deliver to your doorstep again. Really? It is amazing. Yeah, you see these little boxes on the – and when I was living in Denver, there was a Blue Bell or something dairy that did that, and we did that. That was pretty fun. Um, it's probably not the most climate-friendly, maybe? I don't know. Uh, uh, but, um, but yeah, so this is this is a really, really minor note about how uh, you could buy – the milk came in little plastic bags. You had to cut the corner. You stick it in a little jug that would hold it, and then you pour it from there. Uh, and it, I thought it was a pretty clever uh, system and probably fairly low waste. But I don't know. The plastic bags themselves might not recycle. Well, anyway, we're way deep into the weeds. We are. But it is fascinating to know. Thank you, John. Uh, I am actually very glad to know that. And if you, ha if you have a weird quirk about milk delivery systems in your hometown, please let us know. Uh, yeah, and it will feature you on our other podcast. That's right, Milkwana. Milkwana. I'm reading the outro because uh, you were the you were oh, the you nice. were the today. Right, getting ready for my point. My All right, point. a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We did it. That was awesome. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to me at. Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com or on Twitter at BeervanaPod. Uh, you can also contact us on the newly reactivated Instagram feed. Oh, and you know what I'm going to do? Pod. Because we talked about at the top of the pod, I'm going to I'm going to post my picture of my Mount Hood brewing beer in my window at the Timberline Lodge up on the top of Mount Hood. You can find that at BeervanaPod on Instagram which is certainly where you are, not on Twitter. Uh, I blog at Birvana Blog and I tweet at Birvana. Uh, I sort of tweet at Beernomics. Yeah, I think Once so. In a while. But, I'm, but I'm Instagramming it, baby. Yeah, that's right. You 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 are the man that's that's animating the uh, the Instagram feed. So. Which is why it only gets animated like once every two months. Yeah, still. But I'm working on that, it. I'm that, working on that's it. That's a view into Patrick's mind. Even that. <laughs> All right, Patrick. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, cheers to this great uh, oh, yeah. Rubens. This Rubens thing is insanely is, good. It's all that. Go look for it. Cheers. Cheers.